This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. So for vacation, we often go down to visit my wife's family in Florida. And the drive is long. We used to go all in one, one shot through the night into the day, just driving and driving and driving. I can't do that anymore. It's just too much. So we take our time. We'll, we'll break up the trip over days. But I'm still tired when I get there. And sometimes in the afternoon, I will doze off on the couch, take a little nap just to catch up. It's nice, especially in the heat of the day, to take a, to take a break. My father-in-law is a very kind person. And when, when he sees someone slumped over on a couch or in a recliner, having fallen asleep in the middle of the day, he has a habit It took me a while to get used to. He will shout that person's name. Hey, Joel. Yeah. Are you sleeping? Yes. Taking a nap. Why don't you go in the bedroom and lay down and, like, actually get some good rest? Oh, okay. Now, I've come to understand that he... He genuinely wants, wants people to get a nice rest and then be refreshed. He doesn't want to have to like, be quiet and tiptoe around and, and accidentally wake someone up. It's a very considerate thing to do. But it took me a while to get there. It took me a while to understand what he was doing. Because when you wake me up to ask me if I'm sleeping, it's hard for me to respond kindly. Now the Lord's working on me. The Spirit's working. You know, I'm, I'm trying to you know, have the fruit of the Spirit and be peaceful and kind and nice. But when you wake me up to ask me if I'm asleep, that's a real test. (laughs) And so I've come to a place now, when he says that, I respond like this. Oh, not anymore. And I get up (laughs) and move on. That way I can feel good about what I'm doing. He can feel good about what he's doing. There's There's no difficulty there. But have you noticed how being awakened suddenly is not a great experience when you, when you are abruptly awakened from a nap in the middle of the night when, when someone wakes you up. It's, it's typically not a good reason that they have for waking you up, especially in the middle of the night. If someone comes to get you out of bed, there's usually a, a horrible mess that needs cleaned up or some, some difficulty that needs addressed or some noise that needs to be investigated. There, there is one exception. The one, the one good way, reason to wake someone up in the middle of the night is if you have teenagers and you have to wake them up to say, hey, by the way, tomorrow's a snow day. You don't have to get up and get ready for school. That's a great reason to wake somebody up in the middle of the night. Other than that, it's usually bad. When I was a kid, uh, we went camping a lot for vacation. We would pack the tent in the car, lots of food, cook over the fire. And uh, we, you know, we're seasoned campers. And so we would take some air mattresses with us so that we didn't have you know, like a rock that, or a root under the tent we didn't know about wake up sore and grumpy because of that rough night's sleep. And so we, we would sleep on little air mattresses. One night, we woke up in the middle of the night. It wasn't morning yet. We woke up because something felt wrong. We were no longer resting on the ground. Our air mattresses were floating. <laughs> we were wet and we were cold. And an unexpected rain came upon us in the night. And not just a little rain, a downpour. And... There was enough water in the bottom of the tent that those air mattresses had started to move a little bit. Not only that, our pillows were soaked, our, our sleeping bags were wet, our suitcases were soaked. I don't know if you know this about tent camping, but when you plan on 
inclement weather, when you know there's a rain coming, you move everything away from the walls of the tent so that the rain will wash off the top of the tent, wash down the walls of the tent, and go off into the ground and soak in. If you leave something touching the side of the tent, the water, as it comes down, will seep through the walls of the tent and soak whatever's touching the walls of the tent. We didn't know there was rain coming. We didn't bother to move everything in, and so we woke up to find everything just completely soaked. That's a, that's a, a rude awakening, I'll tell you that much. Cold and wet is no fun. There are some people who can sleep through those kinds of things. Who can sleep through just about anything? If there's loud noises, doesn't matter. They can sleep through a long car ride. They're difficult to wake up. Even when they're in, in a deep sleep, just simply like nudging them to wake them up because they're snoring can be a difficult process. I often find myself being awakened by my wife. I'm like, why, why are you shouting? It's because I've been trying to wake you up for 15 minutes. And this is what I had to do to get you awake. You're snoring right in my face. It happens. It happens. And when you're not expecting to hear someone shout in your face, wake up! It, it can be a, a rude awakening. But, but sometimes those words are, are necessary. Sometimes they're needed. Sometimes there's something important that you need to wake up for. As we, as we begin reading our, our letter to the church at Sardis today, this next letter in our series to the, of the letters of the churches, the seven churches in Asia from Revelation, we're, we're going to read this letter to the church at Sardis. And, and the key words in this whole letter are those, wake up, is what the, the message that the Lord had for the believers there. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3, uh, verse 1. If you want to open your Bibles and turn with me, the words will be on the screen. If you want to use the U version, like I said, at welcome time. You can search under events for Parkview Finley and find scripture and sermon notes there as well. Let's read together these words from the Lord. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll, you will not know what time I will come to you. Now you have a few people in, in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this letter, like the others we've studied, begins with this greeting from the Lord, identifying him, authenticating the source of the letter, uh, with a piece of this vision that John saw of, of Jesus in his power and glory, this, this incredible imagery and the different pieces of what John saw reflect the nature and character of, of Jesus. So he began this letter in the same way, beginning with this bit of vision from chapter one, the book of Revelation, but including some more information that we discover. And so he said, these are the words of, of him who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits. So as we talked before, the seven stars represent the angels of each of the seven churches who are held in the hand of the Lord. And now we have these seven spirits that we encounter, and, and we've not yet heard about them. Later in Revelation, we're going to read that these are spirits that God sent out into the world to work, and they too are in the hand of Jesus, sustained, empowered, guided, 
This imagery of Jesus holding everything in his hand is important for us in the church. To acknowledge his sovereignty. To see how he cares, how he guides, how capable and powerful his hands are. It's important for us, especially when we tend to think of the church as ours, that it belongs to us. And that's, it's an important thing for us, especially for, for those of you who were here when, when this church was built. Some of you were, were standing on this plot of land when the, the foundation was poured, when the forms were set and the concrete was poured in the outer walls, when, when the trusses were set and the roofing was set. You, you were here doing all the finished work inside and, and you have ownership over this building. You, you, you have this special place in your heart for the church building that we have, because you were here helping build it. And we're grateful for your efforts, and we're glad to worship here alongside you. Some of you have come since then, and you are grateful for the fellowship that we have here, the unity that we have here, the welcome that you receive, and the closeness that you feel. And there's a sense of ownership for you with the people who are part of you inside the walls of this church where we worship together. And we all think in terms of how this is our church, when we talk about, about, about Parkview, when we invite people to come and attend with us, we say, hey, I'd love for you to come to my church. Come and, come and worship with us here. And there's this sense of ownership that, that we, is valuable for us, but it's also dangerous when we start to think in terms of entitlement, when we start to think in terms of what we are doing here for the Lord, when we start to think about our will and our way and keeping things under our control. That's a dangerous thing for us to, to think about struggling and striving to make sure we're controlling when ultimately what we need to do is surrender to the power and the leadership and the guidance of the Lord who has not only us in his hands, but every church everywhere within his sovereign power, under his guidance, especially when we're willing to submit and follow and strive to be the church he's calling us to be. For the church in Sardis, this reminder of having those things in his hand is, is critically important. Acknowledging that, that we belong to him, our church belongs to him. Here's what he said to them. I know your deeds. I know. I know what you're doing. You have a reputation of being alive. People look, at, people look from the outside in. And they, what they say, things are, things are happening. You're, you're alive. But, but really you're dead. Once you open the doors and come inside, people, people realize the, the reality behind their perception. And what they see is that, you, that you're dead. The lifelessness of the church at Sardis was significant to them. And as we read through this letter, maybe you noticed something missing from this letter that was present in the other letters. A warning. Each of the other churches received a warning about difficulty that they were facing. Some of them heard about the, the difficulty of false teaching in the church, of those who were leading people away from the Lord, the Nicolaitans, the prophetess Jezebel. Other churches received a warning about, about threats from outside the church, the synagogue, of those who were saying that the Christians weren't really a part of the family of God because they believed in Jesus. Some of them were, were experiencing the threat of persecution, that their faith was being challenged to the point of death. And Jesus was encouraging them and warning them to, to be faithful in the face of those things. In this letter to the church at Sardis, there's no warning about those dangers. There's no warning about those attacks coming. There's not even warning about temptation from Satan. Why? Because Satan isn't attacking this church. There's nothing that's threatening to him. Those, those other 
those other outside sources aren't attacking the church. Why? Because they aren't a threatening presence in the community. They are lifeless, ineffective, and therefore, there's no warning for them to guard against all these attacks. They aren't experiencing those difficulties. When Paul wrote his letters to the churches in the New Testament, especially to, to Timothy, he talked about a form of godliness, uh, but the believers denying its power, those who believe in God and yet aren't living out the fullness of the gospel in their lives. They aren't living out their faith in meaningful ways. Jesus in the book of Luke said, Woe to you when, when all speak well of you, a church that has no difficulty in the world isn't effectively reaching out with the message of truth from Scripture. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus gathered his disciples together and provided them authority to speak his message of truth, provided them with authority to, to perform miracles in his name, he warned them that as they went out proclaiming the truth about, about him, that they would encounter conflict. They would encounter difficulty that the world wouldn't accept them, and that as they preached that message and, and started changing lives, that they would see families in conflict over the different beliefs. That as, as people turned their lives over to the Lord, there would be conflict, brother against brother, father against son, difficulty would be present, that they would have to face and, and walk with people through that difficulty. And we acknowledge the difficulty of living according to the truth of the word of God in the world around us today. These, these words are are. Pertinent to recognize that as we live authentically, as we genuinely devote ourselves to the truth of the word of God, as we reach out into the world with that message of love and grace, as we talk about the absolute truth that we, that we read in scripture, we are going to find conflict in the world. We are going to find difficulty accepting the truth of that message. And, and maybe that's what you've experienced as you, as you are reaching out, as you are evangelizing. If you're talking about the love and grace of Jesus Christ in your life, you're experiencing that difficulty. The message of truth encounters conflict in a variety of ways. It encounters conflict because it is an exclusive message. As we talk about Jesus as the way and the truth and the life and the only way to the Father is through him, that's an exclusive message. Say there aren't a number of paths that you can take toward eternity and all of them are acceptable. Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. And while that message is open for anyone to respond to, there's a requirement that you respond. There's a requirement that you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you repent of your sins and are baptized in his name. Without Jesus, those paths are meaningless. And that exclusive message create conflict. As we read through the, the message of the, the word of God, the truth is an, a message of absolute truth, not a message of selective truth, not a message of, of sliding truth, not a message of, of, of different truths, that you can have your truth and you can have your truth and I can have my truth and all those truths can be equally the same, even though they're different, they can all be true. Doesn't even make sense when I say it. The truth is absolute in the word of God, unchanging truth because it's founded in an unchanging God. And when we proclaim absolute truth that doesn't change based off of my feelings, doesn't change off of whether or not someone else might be offended, what we see is that message is confrontational because it calls people to recognize that they have built this truth around themselves to protect themselves. And in order to believe in Jesus, those, 
those beliefs have to be confronted and addressed and sometimes torn down so that they can accept the absolute truth of the word of God and allow it to change their lives. As we talk about what scripture says in terms of sin and righteousness, that there are clear moral boundaries for our lives that God has set before us, even commandments about the way we should live. That's an offensive thing to say to people. Well, you can't tell me that that what I'm doing is sin. You can't tell me that I'm a sinner because I choose to do this thing. You can't tell me that my lifestyle is sinful. What we have to say about, about sin and righteousness is offensive to people because it calls them to accountability for the way they're living their lives, that they can no longer just justify any action, any behavior, any word, any attitude because it fits with their worldview or perspective or lifestyle. No, we're, we're living according to a standard of scripture that doesn't change, that clearly defines our lives. And it's a message that brings conflict. And because we know it brings conflict, we have to speak that truth in love. We have to care for people as we confront them with the truth of God's word. We have to encourage them to understand that the life-changing, hope-bringing gospel message of grace and love will confront their perspective, will chip away at their perspectives and attitudes. It will tear down all those selfish structures that they've built around themselves so that the truth of God's word can penetrate their hearts, so that it can bring about the change that it's intended to to, to bring about, so that it can draw them closer to the Lord. That's what it does for each of us. And that's what it will continue to do in the lives of people who turn their hearts to him. But it is a bit of a painful process that we walk people through. And so we we think in terms of, of love and grace and care and kindness and compassion, bringing people to understand the truth of God's word and help them as they address those things that need to be changed, as they encounter all those difficulties. Like the church in Sardis, we choose to to commit ourselves even though we know that's going to bring conflict. Here's what Jesus said to to the church there as he challenged them about the way that they were living. So live up to the reputation that's worthy of your faith in Jesus Christ. You have a reputation of being alive, and yet people open those doors, and what do they find? You're dead. Live up to the reputation worthy of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, reputation is an important part of our lives. Positive reputation is difficult to build, but so easy to lose. And we think about the reputation of the church in the world around us. We think about the reputation of the Lord in the world around us. And we acknowledge the responsibility that we have in our lives to hold high that reputation. That our words and our actions have an impact on that reputation. Reputation begins with what we say and what we do. But that's not all that a reputation depends on. Reputation also depends on what people see us doing. What people hear us saying. And how they judge our words and actions and how they talk about our words and actions. Reputation has a lot to do with other people's perspective about what we're doing. And it's important for each of us to think about how we are representatives for the Lord. How we are ambassadors for Christ in the world around us. How we, our lives, our words, our attitudes, our actions will make an impact on his reputation in the world around us. And we take responsibility for that. We take responsibility for the reputation of the church. We take responsibility for the reputation of the Lord and choose to live authentically according to the truth that we find in his word. Choose to live a genuine life that supports 
that, that we wouldn't be one thing on the outside and people discovered that we're full of hypocrisy on the inside, that we're not living according to the truth that we proclaim, that our lives aren't full of the life and vitality of the message that we bring, but that our lives would be an authentic representation of everything we say and do. We take responsibility for the reputation of the church. The church of Sardis had a, had a good reputation, but they weren't living according to that reputation. Here's what Jesus said to them. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now, it's, it is a beautiful weekend. It is, the, the weather is turning, the sun is shining, it's warming up. Maybe you, like me, have been doing some work around the house. Projects, honeydew list, you've been out mowing and landscaping and, and weeding and mulching. You've been working on things going on in the house. Have you ever, have you ever spent a lot of time working and, and then got distracted and left some things unfinished? Worked really hard in the yard, but you had a, a home improvement project inside, a renovation that's going on that, that kind of you set off to the side. I'm in the middle of a bathroom remodel right now. We're working on some things. And it's taken me a little while. I'd like to say it's been a few weeks. I think it's been a few months. It, I just got distracted. I'm in the middle of some things and, and, you know, other important things came up. Is it essential to get done? Well, it's important. It, w- it would make certain people in my house very happy to have it done but I haven't, I haven't finished yet. Uh, we're working on other things. We've been, we've been, you know, planting flowers, planting some muscadine grapes, you know, do, doing meaningful good things. The outside of the house looks good. But the, the fear is that, that someone will, will come to visit and open the door and see those things that are undone. And, and I'll know. I, I could have finished those things. I could have spent some time working on those. But now we have to work through the inconvenience of those unfinished projects. We have to, we have to bear the, the uncomfortable, almost, almost sense of, of shame of, of knowing that, that our house isn't in order when people come to visit. And, and this, this is the same thing Jesus said about the church. From the outside, people look at the church and they say, wow, you have a good reputation. They come inside and, and oh, here are all the things that you were doing for the Lord that are unfinished works. God, God sees those. He says, I, I see. I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. There's so many things that you could be committing yourself to complete, to accomplish, to do for the Lord. And yet, for whatever reason, for whatever distraction, you've chosen to set those aside to to do other things. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's an important message for the church. We, we hear these words of Jesus in the church of Sardis that was, that was asleep. And, and what we're talking about, we, we read through, through the New Testament, we see these, these representations of spiritual health, of, of those who are asleep spiritually, those who are dead spiritually. These are phrases that are almost synonymous as we talk about the poor spiritual health of the church. Uh, but we also acknowledge that being spiritually dead is worse than being spiritually asleep. It's definitely not where we want to be. And so we think about, if Jesus is saying this about the church in Sardis, so you, He's saying both these things about the church. You need to wake up. You have this reputation for being alive, but you're dead. How would a church get to that place? How how would a church get to the place where Jesus would would look at the the inner workings of the church and say, oh, your deeds are unfinished in the sight of my God. Wake up and wake up and address these things. Wake up and start living according to the faith that you have. Live up to that reputation that's worthy of your faith in Jesus Christ. What would a church be if it, if it was called asleep by the Lord? Well, we might be called asleep if, if we get caught in a rut, doing the same things that we've always done, hitting repeat, 
over and over again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Let's just keep doing those things. Well, they were effective 10 years ago. And even though the world around us has changed, even though the needs of families in the, in the community around us have changed, we're just going to keep continuing on with those events, keep continuing on with the way we've done worship for years and years and years, hoping maybe it'll be more effective now than it was, even though we're not willing to change anything. Sometimes we get caught in those ruts. We think, well, maybe if we just persevere, if we just continue on, we lose that effectiveness. We settle, set back on our heels, find ourselves dozing off at the wheel. The church could be found asleep if they're going through the motions, checking off a list of spiritual necessities in worship. You think about worship that takes place Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, a predictable pattern of things that we need to accomplish when we gather together, fellowship and we say hello to everyone at greeting time, of worship and we sing our songs of, of teaching and we sit through a, a, a sermon and we have communion time and offering and leave here and go to have lunch and pray before we eat. And we think, oh, I was at church today. Did I, did I do everything I need to do at church? And made sure I had communion, made sure I, I, I was present for everything that took place. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay for this week. I can move on. Everything's accomplished. Okay, well, well what was the sermon about? What, how was your life challenged? How are you growing from the word of God? Well, I, I, I was there. I listened to the sermon. I don't really remember what we talked about. I was, I was there the whole, I stayed away. Really? Okay, well, well what about worship? How, how were you moved in worship? How, how did you lift high the name of God through your praise? Well, I really like the second song. I don't remember what the name of it is, but the beat was nice. Oh, okay. We, we, have, we have a way of, of going through the motions, of, of hitting autopilot, and, and making sure we accomplish all the right things, but not engaging our hearts, not engaging our minds, not being actively involved in the worship of our God. And, and we look back and think, it's like being half asleep when you're driving, taking a, taking a trip somewhere, and you get to the destination, and you think, I don't remember I don't remember much of this trip. I mean, I know I was driving, but I was a little tired and half asleep. I don't remember getting off on the exit. I don't remember, wow, I don't remember much of anything. How dangerous it is to be falling asleep, going through the motions. The church could be, could be called asleep if they're inactive in the community, content to, to, to gather together for the function of the church, but not reaching out to care for those in need, not reaching out to share the gospel, not reaching out not making an impact. A church could be called asleep when it lacks momentum, when, when, when we come together to worship and, and you can just feel a sense of inactivity, of solidarity, of, of, of static, that, that, that things aren't growing, things aren't moving, they're just the same. We, we can be called asleep when we settle for, for keeping up with other churches in town. We see, we see what other churches are doing and accomplishing the kinds of events that they're having. We think, well, as long as we're doing the same kinds of things, we're, we're, we're good enough. They're, they're not, people aren't going to choose that church over our church. Maybe we would, we would keep up with the expectations of those who are attending. We think, well, people will, will be happy enough if we, if we have worship and a, and a good enough message and we have communion and offering every week. We'll, we'll, we'll be doing good enough if we can meet the expectations of people there. There's no reason for us to strive for excellence. There's no reason for us to grow and improve. As long as, as long as people are happy when they come, that's good enough. A church could be called asleep if they're committed to a shallow expression of their faith. Have you noticed in the, in the world today, in Christianity in America, that we have gotten so inspired by Christian buzzwords, 
catchy phrases of, of sound bites that we can clip and post on social media. And they're, they're phrases that we want to hear. They're phrases that, that sound good to us. And we say, I want to hear more of that. And we wonder, well, how is it changing your life? Well, well, it's not. It's just that it, I know it's the kind of, of language that I want to hear at my church and I want to hear more of it. Well, how, how are you growing? How are you taking that into the world and sharing it with other people? I, I'm not, but I like the way it sounds and I want to hear more. If we commit ourselves to a shallow expression of faith that sounds like it's the right kind of language, but isn't doing anything in our hearts, isn't helping us grow closer to the Lord, we're sleeping where we should be vibrantly alive, actively involved and engaged in the church. Jesus said to the church at Sardis, wake up. Get out of your seats. Engage in the practice of your faith. Invest your lives. If we were to speak this message to a church today that was struggling, we might say this. Don't settle for good enough. Don't rest because you're accomplishing just enough. Don't be satisfied Don't be content. Don't sit back on your heels, but grow. Seek after the Lord. Seek after his presence. Strive to live a dynamic, vibrant life of faith in him. It is an authentic representation of what he's doing. Live for him as a church. We need to to do more than be satisfied with good enough. A church can have a full calendar of events and, and still be lacking if we settle for, for good enough. A church can be full of people who are drawn in and still be lacking if we're settling for, for good enough. A church can have energetic music and excellent worship and still be lacking if we're, if we're settling for good enough. A church can have an entertaining preacher, a helpful message, and still be lacking if we're settling for good enough. We need to strive for excellence. We need to devote ourselves to be actively, fully engaged in the work of the Lord in our lives and the work of the Lord through our lives as we reach in the community for his sake. Our events at Parkview must be purposeful in line with the mission that he's calling us to, to carry his love and grace into the world around us. Our teaching must be absolutely focused on the truth of the word of God. And yes, entertaining enough to keep your attention. Yes, helpful enough that you're not dozing off because what I'm saying is irrelevant. But always committed to the truth of God's word. Never glossing over, but faithfully devoted to helping each and every one of us grow in him. Our fellowship together must be sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has difficulty in our lives and our jobs and our families. When we come together, it's easy to be frustrated. It's easy to, to get irritated. We know that when we, when, we, when we share time, we worship together, that those relationships are sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit building us up together in love. We know that our connections with people have to be a representation of the unity that we share, the encouragement that we have as we proclaim the gospel message, as we, as we bring that message to the community around us. We have to be devoted to the unity and encouragement that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be driven and led to authentically, accurately, genuinely express his love in the world around us. 
The words that Jesus had for the church at Sardis continue on from there. He said, remember, therefore, what you've received. Remember what you've heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. Here's a, a warning for those who are unrepentant. Here's a warning for those that the return of Jesus will be like having a thief break into your house in the middle of the night. We had a, we had a, a, a series of break-ins in our neighborhood um, last year. It, it was unsettling. Our neighbor across the street had, had, had a guy come in through the window and, and take a purse, take some, some personal items, and it just it, it rattled them. And I got thinking about what that would be like. And I talked to them a little bit about their experience of, of having been broken into. And, and Scripture talks a lot about the return of Jesus, not knowing the day or the hour like a thief in the night. Uh, when, when that happens, when, when your house is broken into, think of the feelings that you would have, those feelings of, of dread, uh, of wondering if everybody's safe and okay, of wondering what kind of damage is there, what things would have been lost. Think of the regret you would feel walking through that mental checklist. If I, had, if I had locked all the windows, if I had made sure the garage door was closed, if I had turned the deadbolt on the front door, how might I have prevented this from happening? How might I have been more prepared to defend against this attack? Can you think of the fear that would be present of, of feeling unsafe in your own home? This might happen again. And the return of Jesus, he said, for those of you who don't wake up, when I come back, you'll have these same kinds of feelings when you see me. You'll don't, you won't know the day or the hour. You won't know the time that I come. I'll be like a thief in the night. But think of the feelings that you would have if you were unprepared for the returning of the Lord. The dread of seeing Jesus return. The regret of thinking about your life and how you might have devoted yourself to the things of the Lord, how you might have been better prepared to see him, how you might have, how you might have devoted your time and attention and energy to the things of God instead of chasing after these meaningless pursuits. Think about the fear present about eternity, about judgment that's coming. For those who are faithful, for those who, who have taken those precautions, the returning of the Lord will be a joyous reunion. Even though we don't know when he's coming, the day or the hour, he might appear in the middle of the night when we see him. Think of the warm embrace of the Lord, the feelings that will be present in us, knowing that we have committed our lives to him, knowing that we've accepted him as Lord and Savior, knowing that we've been, been striving to live faithful lives devoted to him, how different those feelings will be at his return. That's, that's the warning that Jesus provided to the church at Sardis. Don't, don't let his return be this, this frightening experience of dread and regret and fear, but instead let it be a time of joy, a reunion with the Lord. He said this, you, you still have a few people in Sardis who haven't soiled their clothes. They'll walk with me dressed in white for they're worthy. And in the New Testament, well, in the, in the Bible, we have this, this visual imagery of faithfulness and sin in terms of clothing that are... are, are Sin creates stains on our clothes. This, this, this soiling, this contamination that is seen in our lives that creates difficulty for us, that breaks our relationships, that breaks our relationship with God, that, that creates consequences for us. It, it is a horrible mess that's plainly seen to all. The book of Isaiah, uh, he, he says these words that, that when we're imperfect, even our righteous acts 
are like filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. Even the things that we think are, are good enough. Because of our imperfection, they just aren't. And, and the wrong in our lives is clearly seen. But this, this imagery of clothing continues as, as we discover the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. That, that in him, we're given new clothes. Galatians chapter 3 says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there's this imagery of, of an exchange that takes place. That when Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross, he did so with our sin on his shoulders. That he took the, the, the cloak that we were wearing that is stained with our sin and put it on himself and paid the price for that sin. And he took off the cloak that he was wearing, this, this, this robe that is white as snow, a representation of his perfection, of his sinless life. And he wrapped that around our shoulders. He took our sin and gave us grace. And we have this new set of clothes that changes our life. Have you ever put on a new outfit and just felt like you could conquer the world? Just felt the confidence of looking good and you walk out of the house like, I can do anything today. This is, this is what we feel when we're clothed with Christ. We have these, this robe that's white as snow and we think, well, what, what can I do today? How can I live up to the image that Christ has given me? How can I live up to his image in my life? And we think about how we can be faithful, how we can reach into the world, how we can devote our lives to him. And that image of, of life in Christ should carry with us throughout the remainder of our lives, bearing his image in the world around us, living faithfully devoted to the image that he places on us. Our faithfulness is easily recognized in our lives. That, that, that continuation of living in the, that being clothed with Christ. But we also know the opposite is true, that as easily recognized as our faithfulness is, sin is easily recognized in our lives as well. A couple of weeks ago, I was leading a discussion for the Hancock Leadership Group from Finley Hancock Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Jonah Gillespie, our children's minister, is a graduate of the leadership program this year, great accomplishment. And uh, I was there leading a discussion about practical leadership. And about five minutes before I was, I was set to speak and begin leading this discussion, I took a drink of coffee. I don't have to say it, you know what I'm gonna say. I took a drink of coffee, it hit the side of my mouth, it spilled on my shirt, it had this brown spot right on my gut. And I knew, like, why, why couldn't this have happened after I was done speaking? It happened right before I started speaking. Now, when I get up to, to, to begin, everyone's going to hear my voice and then look down at that spot. And all the things are going to play through their mind. Was that chocolate? Maybe it's syrup. Well, it's probably coffee. I know Joey drinks a lot of coffee. It's probably coffee. Is that, is that a fresh stain? Is that from today? Or is this an old shirt? Did he even wash that shirt? Is he wearing it again, even though it's stained? You think about all the things that would go through your own mind. And this is what I'm worried about. When I get up to talk about leadership, all the, all, the, whole, group, the whole room is just going to be staring at that stain, thinking, distracted, because of how evident this is. It will become the focal point, and no one will even hear what I have to say. Now, you think about how that applies to our lives. When we reach out to the community, when we, when we proclaim the gospel message of the love and grace of Jesus Christ, and yet... We have these stains because of the sin that we have indulged in. We have these, these visual evidences of, of the, the, the disgusting remnant of that contamination of sin. And we think, well, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to share the love and grace of Jesus in the world around me. And when we go to say, Jesus loves you and he wants to save you from your sin, they look and go, oh. And they don't even hear what we have to say because all they can do is focus on the, 
stain in our lives. Distracting them from the message, the focal point, rather than the message of truth. Jesus is calling us to live according to the image that we bear. To to faithfully devote our lives. To honor his reputation in the world around us. Knowing that we're not perfect. Living in the grace that he provides. Striving to honor it. Allowing the spirit to mold us and shape us more and more. To look like him every day. That we would be an accurate, genuine reflection of his love and grace in the world around us. He continued to encourage the church saying, the one who's victorious, the one who's faithful to the end will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I'll acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. The reward he's talking about is salvation, his eternal relationship with Jesus, his presence for all of eternity. Dressed in white, name in the book of life, acknowledged before the Lord, clothed with Christ, sins washed by the blood of the lamb, whiter than snow. And it closes the letter in the same way. We have ears. We can hear. And the message that he proclaimed to the church in Sardis is important for us to hear as well. We should allow it to to mold us and to shape us and to free us from the the selfish structures we build around our lives so that we can faithfully follow where he's leading We've all heard this message, and, and maybe you've been thinking about the imagery that, that Jesus provided for the church of Sardis. Maybe, maybe there's some places in your life that you're hoping nobody will see, some stains that you're trying to hide, some, some things from, from life that you think, well, maybe nobody's noticed how dirty my shirt is, but there's this stain I just can't get away from, and you know that you can't get it out. You've tried, tied, you've tried shout you've tried every stain remover in the world and there's nothing you can do to remove that stain and you know you need Jesus you know you need his grace you know that you need to surrender to the Lord and allow him to clothe you in him to to wash those sins in his blood maybe you've been thinking about what it is to be asleep as a believer what it is to to believe in God and yet have a form of godliness and deny its power, of of going through life and and feeling like you're asleep at the wheel and not living a dynamic, engaged expression of your faith. And and you know it's time for you to make a change. You know it's time for you to wake up, to get out of your seat and get involved, to get active, to, to commit yourself to serving the Lord and reaching out of the community. This morning, I want to challenge you. As the Lord is working in your heart, as the Spirit is speaking to, to your heart, that you would respond. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the message you bring. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, I pray that you would wake us up from our slumber, that you would involve us deeply in, in your kingdom, that you would help us to engage all of who we are in our relationship with you. God, I pray that you would help us see those, those stains in our lives and that we would surrender those to you, God, that we would allow you to cleanse us completely, by accepting Jesus as the Lord and Savior, repenting of our sins and being baptized in your name. God, we are grateful for the grace that you provide, for the love that you extend. We thank you in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.